Well, hey, welcome to Jacksonville Prez. If you would grab a Bible, make your way back to your seat. If you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're physically able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Happy New Year to everybody. If you haven't been back since uh, Christmas Eve, welcome back. Happy New Year. Uh, we are going through the Sermon on the Mount for the next several weeks here at our church. And uh, really for the next six weeks or so, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer, which is right at the heart of Matthew chapter 6. So with that in mind, I'd love for everybody to grab a copy of God's Word. Uh, if you don't have a print Bible, grab one of these blue Bibles. It's page 964. Uh, if you don't have a print Bible at home, take one of these blue Bibles home with you. We'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word. This morning we're looking at uh, just a couple of uh, verses within this broader context, but really for the next six weeks, right, we're looking at the whole Lord's Prayer, but we're going to take it slow. So with that in mind, go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 through 13. And with that in mind, friend, hear the word of the Lord. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, page 964. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil." Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated and let's pray together as we keep those Bibles open in front of us. The Holy Spirit, we ask that you, uh, by your power, would give us the spirit of adoption, that we would cry, Abba, Father, that you would give us learning and insight into your word, that we would learn to trust in God, our Father and in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, look down with me at Matthew chapter 6. What can you call this prayer? What, is it, what does everybody call this prayer? It is the what? The Lord's Prayer. Okay, so what's fun about that is that's never described in the Bible as the Lord's Prayer. Never once is there a Bible verse that says this is quote-unquote, the Lord's Prayer. So, you know, people, you know, with a little bit of a sense of humor, sometimes they'll say, we shouldn't call this the Lord's Prayer. We should call it the what? The Disciples' Prayer. Because if you look in the Lord's Prayer, it talks about being forgiven of our sins, right? It says, forgive us of our sins, our debts, right? This language of sin, right? Forgive us our sins. And Jesus was God in human form. Jesus didn't sin. So Jesus didn't have to pray that his sins would be forgiven, but we do. So this is why people say, well, we should call this the disciples' prayer. Okay, what else could you call the Lord's Prayer? Does anybody know? There's another term for it. Anybody, anybody know Latin? What can you call it? The paternoster, right? Which means the, anybody know? The our father. So what I want to suggest to you though is when you look at this, we probably shouldn't call it anything other than the Lord's Prayer because uh, that's what everybody knows it as. But really, I think the our father is probably the best name for this prayer because those words appear in the prayer and also it encapsulates everything at the heart of this prayer. Look down at Matthew chapter six for just a second. So 
We're going to be camped out in the Sermon on the Mount for, from here until Easter. The Sermon on the Mount, if you were to zoom out and look at your Bible, is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. So if you look at a Bible, it's three full chapters. If you have a red letter Bible, they're all red. It's Jesus' greatest, longest sermon ever recorded. But if you were to look at the Sermon on the Mount, you'll notice that the Lord's Prayer occurs at the very center of this prayer. There's 10 sections before the Lord's Prayer, and there's 10 sections after the Lord's Prayer. So looking at the whole Sermon on the Mount, we recognize that the Lord's Prayer is at the very heart of this sermon, of Jesus' greatest teaching, the greatest teacher in human history, God himself in human form. Jesus gave us this sermon, and at the very heart of it is teaching you and me how to pray. Uh, you, know, you, you know, we sometimes think when you and I make an argument, if I had three points, I would save my best argument for last. But that's not how Jewish people make arguments. They save their best arguments for the middle. And so when we see that the Lord's Prayer occurs in the middle, we see that this is the focus of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Think of like a hamburger, right? You have a bun, and then you have the patty, and then you have the bun. But everybody knows the best part about a hamburger is what? The patty, right? There's no such thing as like a lettuce bun burger, right? You just, you have to have the patty. This is at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. So we're gonna spend the next several months talking about this. So what I wanna to suggest to you is prayer, prayer is at the heart of your walk with God. So whether you are a Christian or not, everybody in this room has something to learn, especially those who would say that their Christian walk is a little dry right now, or they're in a season where things feel a little flat. And what I want to suggest to you is you're struggling in your walk with the Lord right now. One possible diagnosis is I'm, I'm willing to bet that your prayer life is basically non-existent right now. You know, um, I'm not just saying that. Uh, if, if any, if, have anyone ever seen this devotional before? <laughs> it's written by one of our members. We've encouraged everybody in our church to be reading it. it has, it's a 31-day devotional, and there's 31 days in January. So if you were following along in this devotional, some of you are, thank you. Day eight actually gives this great uh, idea about prayerlessness. The name of the book, anybody remember what the name of the devotional is that Brian wrote, one of our members? It's called Champagne Without Bubbles. Anybody ever want to, you know, open a bottle of champagne? And he says, if you open a bottle of champagne, but imagine you waited for a week before you drank it. Would anybody want to drink that champagne? No, because it would all be flat. Even though it would still be the same thing, it would lose its vitality. And Brian, in this book, on today's devotional, says what? Unfortunately, champagne is not the only thing that can lose its effervescence when not used promptly. Our relationship with God goes very flat and unspectacular when we fail to pray. Prayerlessness is a serious issue for a disciple of Christ because prayer is the way we discern God's path for our lives. It's how we discern what our role is, which we were made to play in his kingdom. It is through prayer we receive his wisdom for each day to meet the challenges. In prayer, he sets before us the place where we can resolutely, with dogged determination, surrender our imperfect will to his perfect will. Prayer is where unconfessed sins come to light and are repented of. Prayer is where we can cry out in pain and in distress and meet the God of all comfort. Uh, friends, prayer is hard for the Christian. This is why the disciples have to say things like, teach us to pray, Jesus. We don't know how to do this. We need you to teach us. 
And whether you are Christian or not, if you struggle in your prayer life, friends, you have come to the right place. And it is not to me. It is to Jesus Christ, who himself is the greatest teacher in all of human history when it comes to prayer. Yes, he's the greatest teacher because he's God, but he's also the greatest teacher when it comes to prayer. What you are holding in your hand is the greatest teaching on prayer in human history. So you should be excited. You should be sitting on the edge of your seat. Your heart rate should be accelerating a little bit right now to learn how to pray from the greatest teacher in human history. Think about it this way. Um, who, if, if you're in high school, uh, anybody here play soccer? Anybody here, did you play soccer when you were in high school? Raise your hand if you're one of those soccer people. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, just use this silly thought experiment for a second, okay? You know what soccer is if you don't play, right? All right, some people call it football, but that's just sinful. All right, so <laughs> imagine, imagine for just this silly thought experiment. Imagine you're, you're with your soccer club, okay? And imagine Lionel Messi shows up at your club and he says, I will spend the rest of the week teaching you how to play soccer. Do you think you would skip any of the practices? Do you think you would like find your way to be closer to Lionel Messi, not just for a selfie, but also be like, hey, can you teach me how to play soccer better? Or think about it this way. Imagine if you uh, won a sweepstakes and the chef, Gordon Ramsay, promised you two things. One, he would come teach you how to cook for a week in your house. And number two, he would not cuss at you while he did it. All right? Imagine if you could have an entire week with Gordon Ramsay showing you how to cook in your kitchen. Would you, like, maybe you'd be taking notes. Maybe you'd have your little phone out. You'd be like, do everything you just did, but slower, and then tell me everything, and please don't cuss at me, right? Okay, last one. Just think about it this way. Maybe that, if you don't care about food or soccer, just imagine if Joanna Gaines, blessed Joanna Gaines, the lady who does all the Magnolia housing decoration thing, right, from Texas. Imagine if she came to your house, and was like, I will spend the rest of the week teaching you how to decorate. Do you think you would be all ears with Joanna Gaines? I don't know why. All you gotta do is paint everything white and put like a wagon wheel on a wall somewhere. <laughs> paint the floors white, paint the walls white, paint the interior white, paint the exterior white. Put some barn wood somewhere. Put the word y'all written in metal somewhere. <laughs> all right, I'm belaboring the point. My point is, when we get around somebody who knows something, who knows something we don't know, who has not just knowledge but experience, profound experience, experience we can't even fathom to understand, we can't even deign to pretend we know even what we don't know about soccer compared to Lionel Messi, right? There's a whole world of soccer that he's forgotten about that I'll never even learn. So when you and I come to the topic of prayer, you and I come to Jesus Christ himself, God himself teaches you how to pray. He teaches you how to pray. And it's not complicated. It's actually quite simple, but it is profound. So with that in mind, you should be just as excited to learn how to pray from Jesus as you would be if you won the sweepstakes to hang out with Gordon Ramsay. So what is it that Jesus wants us to know and to do when it comes to prayer? Well, look it down at your passage, Matthew chapter 6. What I want you to recognize is prayer is vital to the Christian life. You cannot live the Christian life and not pray. You cannot have champagne that does not have the cool CO2 bubbles in it. If you do, you just spit it out. You don't want it. A, a Christian life without prayer is flat. If you're struggling with why aren't you growing, well, are you talking to the Lord? Are you meeting him in prayer? Look at Matthew chapter six. Look at verse five. How does that verse begin? Matthew chapter six, verse five. What does it say? And 
when you pray. Look at verse six. How does it begin? But when you pray. Look at verse seven. And when you pray. So you're starting to see that Jesus is saying over and over again, prayer is vital to your Christian walk. Not, it's not necessarily going to save you. That's not my point. My point is to actually having a fulfilling Christian life, to knowing God in honesty. Prayer is vital when you pray, when you pray, when you pray. But Jesus is a great teacher on prayer. And what he does, before he starts taking us down the path of prayer, what he does is he has to clear the path of all the debris. You know, if you were, you know, um, this past week, uh, I went up to Central Oregon where everything's snowy and cold all the time. It was horrible. It's so great to come back and it's like, oh, it's 55 degrees. That's cool. Uh, this past week, we were up in uh, Sisters. And so it was snowy everywhere. And I don't like driving on snow. Do you, do you think that I would be willing to drive on snow before somebody laid salt down on the road and moved the snow out of the way? Of course, I would only drive on roads where somebody else has already driven. When Jesus says, this is how to pray, like any good snow shoveler, like any good guide, what he does first is he throws some salt down on the road and says, don't slip. Everybody slips, don't slip. Let me move some things out of the way and teach you how to pray. So the first thing that Jesus says is, here's some things not to do. This is him just moving the snow out of the way, showing us the path forward. Look at verse seven. He says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So Jesus is understanding prayer to be vital in our life when we pray. But then he says, he's moving the snow out of the way so we don't slip on it. He says, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Now, what does that mean? Is Jesus forbidding repetitive prayer? Are we not supposed to repeat prayers ever? Is that what Jesus is saying? No. Jesus is not saying we can never repeat a prayer. Uh, there's a bunch of examples of repeated prayer in the Bible. One of them we just sang. In Revelation 4.8, there are four living creatures around the throne, and they've all got their six wings, they're full of eyes, and day and night, Revelation 4.8 says, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So them repeating that over and over, never ceasing to say, day and night, does, repeating something does not make it sinful. Also, look down at the Lord's Prayer. Jesus gives us a prayer to recite, to say. What he forbids, though, is empty phrases, thinking that by our repetition or our mantras, that God will somehow hear it differently. Now, this seems really hard for us to understand. So to understand this, you've got to like step into the world that the Bible was written in for just a second, right? So step back like 2,000 years and try to place yourself um, in this context, in this culture. I'm not saying you need to believe what they believe, but what I'm saying is you need to understand what Jesus is having to correct. So the key to understanding the empty phrases and they think they're going to be heard because they keep saying a bunch of words, what's wrong with that? The key is Jesus says, don't pray like a certain group of people. Who is that group of people? He says, don't pray like them. Anybody catch it? It's Gentiles. It's verse 7. So who are the Gentiles? Gentiles are people like me. It's anybody who was not uh, from the nation of Israel who did not know the Old Testament. It's people from every nation. And if you understand this culture, all the different nations had so many gods. There were gods on top of gods, and the gods were not morally upright. 
okay? They're not like moral exemplars. You know, you do not want your daughter meeting Zeus, if you know what I mean, right? They're bad. They're not necessarily morally right people, okay? They're more powerful than you are, and there's no sense that they care about you. Why would the gods care about you? You're just a little speck of dust, right? So if you're in a bind, and you're one of these Gentiles, and you don't know God, and you don't know the gods, and you're not important, you're just a slave somewhere, maybe like in, you know, Thessalonica or something, how in the world are you going to get the gods to care about you? Well, there's a couple of things you could do. If you lived in this world, you could do a couple of things. One, you could pray to every single God you could possibly think of, and you could just say the same prayer like 10 times to every single God, and maybe somewhere one of the gods would be like, hey, someone's saying my name, maybe I should care. And maybe they would come and help you. Another one is you could just say a, a phrase. You could literally make a mantra. You could just say the God's name over and over and over and over and over and over, and maybe he'll finally hear you, and maybe the God would actually care about you. Another way you could maybe get the gods, you know, to have an empty phrase, thinking they'll be heard for their many words. Uh, this does, it's not necessarily how we think, but it's helpful to understand this world for just a second. So let me just geek out. So... When people lived in this day, a lot of people had this belief that if you could learn a God's name, you would have power over the God to give you what you want. So like, if you, you know, if, you, if you're thinking with a sort of supernatural worldview, if you could learn the name of this like supernatural being, you could kind of like strong arm it to giving you what you need. Like, God, I'm having my liver, you know, transplanted, you know? Wah, I say your name and now you're gonna make sure I don't die in surgery, right? That's what they were thinking. Um, the closest example I can give to, to like how people think like this that would make sense to you is, um, you know the Grimm's fairy tale books, those like creepy Grimm's fairy tales? There's this famous one about a miller's daughter and uh, her dad brags that she can spin straw into gold. Do you remember this story? And the king captures her and he's like, spend me a bunch of golden straw or something. And she's like, what am I going to do? I'm going to die. And then who appears in the room with her? This little, like, tiny little evil gnome thing, like this yard gnome comes to life and he's like, I will give you gold, but you got to give me your firstborn. So how is she getting, how does she get out of this? She's like, please let me get out of this. I don't want to be indebted to you forever. And what does a little evil yard gnome tell her? Anybody remember this Grimm's fairy tale? He says, if you can guess my name, you can get out of it. But you have like one day. And so she sneaks off and she finds him out in the wilderness. And he says, she doesn't know that my name is Rumpelstiltskin. And she learns it and she has power over Rumpelstiltskin to get away from this weird, supernatural, creepy thing. To be a Gentile in Jesus' life fundamentally meant you did not know the God of Israel. You did not know the one true God. No God was your father. No God really cared about you. And your best hope was maybe you could say some magic word, maybe some magic name. Maybe you could beg and beg and beg and beg them and maybe finally they would help you. But not because they're good, not because they love you, but probably because you annoyed them. When Jesus says, don't pray like that, don't think that God's going to hear you if you just beg long enough. Don't just heap up empty magic words thinking that's going to be how I relate to you. I am your father. And in fact, I already know what you need. 
Philip Graham Riken uh, is one of my favorite pastors. He is the, he's now president of Wheaton College in Illinois. Before that, he was pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And writing on this, he says that really at the heart of every Gentile, when it came to prayer, at the heart of every Gentile was the heart of an orphan. The heart of an orphan who didn't know that God was on their side, who didn't know that God was their father, and when push came to shove, they really believed they were on their own. Riken says, to pray like a Gentile is to pray like an orphan. He goes on, he writes this, begging is exactly what most postmodern people do when they pray. They pray like orphans. They may not pray very often, but when they do pray, it usually takes the form of begging. In their heart of hearts, they do not know for certain that God loves them. When all else fails or when facing bankruptcy or a major surgery, they may pray like this. Please, God, I don't know if you're there or not, but if you are, please just help me this one time. I'm begging you. If you get me out of this one, I promise I will be, what? A better person. For people who don't know God as Father, prayer is begging like an orphan. So, Christian, when you go to prayer, are you begging? Are you thinking you've got to pray over and over again because he may not hear you? Or do you really know that God loves you? That you're his child? Well, how do you become God's child? You know, we may look at Bible verses and think that, well, everyone is, you know, God's beloved son and God is the father of all. But it's interesting, the Bible doesn't actually teach that. What the Bible teaches in places like Acts 17, Paul will say, yes, we are all God's offspring. But the New Testament is consistent, and so is Jesus, that to really know God as father requires an internal change in a person's life. And the closest analogy that the Bible will use is that of adoption. So you could say that when you become a Christian, when you know Jesus is your savior and you are reconciled to God, your father, you are adopted into the family of God and you become a child of God. And you don't have to beg him for your attention. You know that he is your father. Think about it this way. John chapter 1, if you've never explored Christianity, I'd encourage you to read John. In John chapter 1, it says this. It's John chapter 1, verse 11. It says, Jesus came to his own people, and his own people didn't receive him. But here's the key verse. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Friends, this is what the gospel at its heart is all about. We are like orphans in this world. We don't know God loves us. Maybe we hope that God would love us, but we don't know that God loves us. I don't know if he's really on my side. And when I pray, I'm mostly begging when I really have to pray. But what Jesus comes to teach you, friend, in your prayer life is he reconciled you on the cross for your sake to the Father. And now you have access to God as Father and you never have to doubt his love for you. He has given us the right to be children of God and so we are. 
Now, think about it this way. Who has the right to wake up a king in the middle of the night to ask for a glass of water? Love this. this is Tim Keller. The only person that has the right to wake up a king in the middle of the night and say, I need some water, is what? The child of the king. That's the kind of access Christians have. Don't beg like an orphan. Pray to your father who already knows. He already knows what you need. Don't you love that? Look, look, that's what Jesus says. Look at verse eight. He says, don't be like them. Don't be begging God, thinking he's not on your side. Come to faith in him and trust that your father, right? Know that God is your father. And he knows what? Verse eight, he knows what you need before you ask him. Now, if you're anything like me, when I hear that, I'm like, okay. So Jesus is like, pray a bunch. And I'm like, okay. And then he's like, also God already knows what you need. So, you know, just chill. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So what am I supposed to pray about? <laughs> if God already knows everything I need, what am I supposed to pray about, right? Anybody think about that? Well, look at verse nine. This is the great teacher. Jesus removes the snow from the road. He says, follow me on the road. This is what it means to pray. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Friends, what I want you to recognize in this very simple prayer, right? It is not an endless mantra where you just say God's name 10,000 times hoping he'll hear you. You are not praying like a beggar. The, the best way to pray is not even long. It's short. A child can remember this. It's so short, and yet it's so profound. It's a short little prayer. But notice what we're focusing on. The very first word in your English translation is what? What's the first word in the Lord's Prayer? All right, so I'm not gonna do this to you, but I do want you to, this is just important. It, it's not important. Actually, I'm lying. It's not important at all to know this, but I think it's interesting. There's a uh, Cuban guy named Justo Gonzalez, who's a famous church historian, and I promise you, he wrote an entire chapter on one word, on the Lord's Prayer, in his book on the Lord's Prayer, and it was the word hour. Look at verse nine. Some Cuban dude thought it was important to write an entire chapter on that one word, and I totally agree with him. And the reason you should focus on this word is when you look at the Lord's Prayer, when you look down at it, it's not just a prayer to say. Every word is worth thinking about. And every word can be like a platform to jump into something even deeper and that word hour right there is incredibly profound. Think about it this way. The pronouns in the Lord's Prayer are never singular. They're always plural. Jesus says when you go by yourself and you go into your prayer closet, this is how you should pray. And even when you are one-on-one -on -one with God, you are to remember the body of Christ, other believers your brothers and sisters. It's not my father, it's our father. I am standing in line downstream of all the people of God, past, present, and future, when I pray our father. When I pray our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, I'm praying for you. And I'm praying for every church in the Rogue Valley. And I am praying for every continent on this world. And I am joining the host of heaven when I go to God and I say, he is not just my God, he's our God. Of course, he's my God, but he's also our God. 
DJ Murata wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer, and he says, you have to reimagine, Christian, that your God is shared. It's not just yours. He is yours, but he's also ours. Look at the Lord's Prayer. Underline this. Look at verse 11. Who are we supposed to pray for that God provides their daily bread? Anybody worried whether or not you're going to eat lunch today? Anybody worried you're not going to have lunch food? If you are, come talk to us. We'll give you some food. But my guess is you're not worried about whether or not you have physical food today. But when you pray, give us our daily bread, you should be remembering the poor in this world. You should be remembering the poor in our community. The poor at the southern border. Give us our daily bread. Look at verse 12. Who do we want God to forgive? Forgive me my sins? Well, yes, of course. But really, what does Jesus say? Forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven whom? Our debtors. So when you pray that, you are praying that our church would be a forgiving church. That the church would be made up of forgiving people. And when you say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, you are praying for every pastor, every spiritual leader, every church leader on the planet, and every Christian that God would deliver them from evil and lead them away from temptation. You are praying for every Christian husband, every Christian who has access to the internet, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Friends, when you pray our Father, it's reminding us that it is between you and God. It is a personal relationship it is a vertical relationship between you and God as your father. He is on your side, but it's also horizontal. He's our father. Friends, what better day to remember that than communion Sunday? Normally we do it on the first Sunday of the month. Uh, you know, last week was a holiday, so we pushed it to this week. But when you and I come to our father in heaven, we hallow his name. We revere him. We sing holy, holy, holy. We don't come to him like beggars. We don't come to him like orphans. We come because we know that we are beloved children. And we don't just come by ourselves. We come together as God's beloved people. So then in mind, friends, let's pray as we get ready to take communion together. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law, and you have redeemed us from the curse of the law, that you have sent the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption. And Lord, that we can come to you right now with trust, like trust like with a little child asking their parent for water. Lord, we thank you for that access. We revere and hallow your name. You are holy, holy, holy. And we love you because you first loved us. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the right to become children of God, not by our exertion, not by our will, but by your will. Father, as we get ready to take communion, we ask that you would be uh, distancing our hearts from sin. Lord, that we would see it for what it is. Lord, that we would hate sin and we would love righteousness. And Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Son, right now I ask that you would teach each of us to learn to say the Lord's Prayer, that you would teach us what it means to not heap up empty phrases, but to address God as Father. Holy Spirit, we need you to show us the way. Amen.